Laura had secrets. And around those secrets, she built the fortress that well that in my six months with her, I was not able to penetrate. And for which I consider myself an abject failure. listening to Lost in Twin Peaks, a podcast for both first-time and veteran viewers of Twin Peaks, the mystery series that ran for two seasons in the early 90s on ABC, followed by a feature film, and 25 years later, a limited series on Showtime. Twin Peaks is full of rich characters and situations, many of which will surprise or even shock us. This podcast will avoid all spoilers. If you're a new listener who has just discovered this episode and wants to know more about the podcast, check out Episode Zero, Show Format, and Pilot Intro. This is the fifth episode of the first season, and is referred to as such on Netflix, but I'll probably tend to refer to it as episode four, following the DVD and Blu-ray designations. During its German broadcast, the episode was dubbed The One-Armed Man, and although unofficial, this episode title is used on many streaming services and associated media. On screen, Sarah's description of Bob fits Cooper's dream, Norma attends Hank's parole hearing, and the investigators question the one-armed man, visit a vet's clinic, and raid Jacques' apartment where Bobby has planted Leo's shirt. I don't have any other podcasts to share this week because uh, my other activity has slowed down as I'm trying to keep up and get ahead on these podcasts, even though I am putting together uh, things that I recorded years ago for Patreon. It's still a lot of work, uh, including the Illustrated Companion, which you can check out, which is linked below, uh, a accompaniment, a visual accompaniment to what you're listening to, which I always recommend people to do. But yeah, just that amount of work, I've had to put some of my other podcasts on hold, some of my other projects, so uh, for the moment, this is the focus, so maybe next week I'll have some more updates on, on other material. But for now, let's focus on Twin Peaks by asking the first big three questions that we ask at the beginning of every episode. What is Twin Peaks? Who is Agent Cooper, and who is Laura Palmer? What is Twin Peaks? So far, the show has introduced us to at least two conceptions of the town, as a sea of mystery full of many different islands, channels, and buried treasures of intrigue and personal drama, and also as a complex, interdependent web with the tragedy of Laura Palmer as its centerpiece. This episode, probably more than any other, strengthens both of these visions and makes them seem compatible. Not only do we continue exploring stories and characters introduced in the pilot and subsequent episodes, but this entry also brings in a wealth of new material, often based on little hints or asides established earlier, like Andy's and Lucy's connection or Norma's references to Hank. And we get numerous new or newly fleshed out locations that seem truly lived in, so the world on screen seems bigger and richer. 
but at the same time, the episode is drawing numerous new connections between the townspeople. Ben meets with Leo and mentions Hank. Hank calls Josie. Ben and Catherine watch the police raid on Gerard, himself an inadvertent wealth of connections. Jacques turns out to be involved with Laura. Donna and Audrey trade information, and James and Maddie meet up. And of course, most of this at least tangentially relates to Laura's mystery, leaving the impression that that which doesn't relate to her mystery maybe just doesn't yet. Who is Agent Cooper? Although he doesn't really recapture or predict, given when this episode was shot, the lovably zany, wacky figure of Lynch's episode 2, this Cooper seems a bit more himself than the funeral episodes Coop does, at least at times. The dream proves a narrative anchor to keep reminding us how unusual this FBI detective is, adding some spice to what might otherwise be a straightforward procedural recipe. And Coop is quite skilled at that aspect, too. This episode deftly fuses together Cooper's intuitive, irrational qualities and his rationalistic, hard-nosed law enforcement persona, probably better than any episode since the pilot. In the latter department, we also learn that he's a crack shot, with perhaps a bit of a chip on his shoulder about women, drawing him closer to the sort of cop characters that Frost wrote for Hill Street Blues, themselves often quite colorful, while grounded in professionalism and personal uncertainty. Cooper is also stern and cross with Jacoby, a contrast to their encounter in the cemetery and a reminder that it isn't just the out-of-order Lynch episode that makes characters slightly inconsistent. Aside from any in-world explanations, there are also multiple chefs in this kitchen, and they often have slightly different ingredients. Finally, episode four offers a whiff of a whisper of a backstory for Cooper. I knew someone once who helped me understand commitment, the responsibilities, and the risks who taught me the pain of a broken heart. Is this a one-off gesture, almost comically vague and generalized, to riff on detective story tropes? Or do the creators have more in mind? Is Cooper exclusively our unusual guide into this story? Or is he a character with an arc of his own? Who is Laura Palmer? For the first time on an episode of Twin Peaks, Cheryl Lee does not act on screen as Laura Palmer. No picnic video, no corpse on a table. No flashback, no vision over her friend's face, no image in a dream. We do, of course, open, aside from the establishing shot of her house, on her homecoming portrait. And, as almost always, the show ends by rolling credits over that same portrait. But in episode four, Laura fully becomes an ephemeral presence, evoked in words, motivating actions, and influencing other lives from beyond the grave, unseen. As a few separate investigations emerge, we get the sense that different people are interested in Laura for different reasons. Audrey is excited by the danger she represents. Cooper and the cops are drawn to her place in a sprawling criminal web, and Donna is curious about what's going on in her mind. They all also want to resolve her mystery for their own purposes. The FBI to catch a serial killer, the sheriff's crew to clean up the community's shadowy underbelly, Audrey to impress a love interest, and become his globe-trotting partner and also, for the thrill of it, Bobby to rid himself of a romantic rival, and Donna and James to remove the burden that keeps them from fully committing to each other. Among these explorers, only Donna, James, and perhaps Jacoby seem at all concerned with her inner life and her motivations. If we're going to explore Lara as a person and not just a locus of mystery, these characters might be the key to do so. There's something just really refreshing and engaging about the feel of this episode. It's efficient and economical while also being unrushed. If episode one was all about shaping the groundwork of a police procedural, episode two was about exploring the community, and episode three was about soaking in the atmosphere. But episode four is about moving forward, 
revealing that for all its love of slowness and meditation, Twin Peaks can also thrive as a brisk narrative engine. Iconographic elements are elegantly translated into dynamic components of an ever-evolving mystery machine. The show moves along with a lithe freedom thanks in no small part to Hunter's deft camera work, cutting pace, and blocking of actors. There's an exciting sense that it can go anywhere and do anything it wants, and as noted, the use of many exteriors lends an openness and freshness that underpins this mobility. Exciting. For all of the adjectives one could apply to Twin Peaks up to now, I'm not sure that would be one of them, except maybe in a more generalized sense of Lynch's episodes. A great director showing us what he can do with the form is always exciting. But narratively, this is the first time in the show that I feel a real sense of eager anticipation from scene to scene. And at episode's end, as we wait to find out what adventures we're going to be taking on next week, it, it really feels like the show has hit a great narrative rhythm. This is the first episode directed by Tim Hunter, who went to the American Film Institute around the same time as David Lynch in, I think, late 60s, early 70s. We can see a rather different filmmaking approach than we've noticed so far, aside from maybe the pilot. And even that was only about three different shots, one containing an interaction entirely in one take, and the other two variations on the same close-up, with some movement in the first part. But otherwise, the first minute of episode one was just one shot with movement. Episode two was almost entirely one shot with no movement. And episode three was a couple shots, covering the same plane of action with a little movement between different areas. This episode, on the other hand, contains ten cuts between eight different shots, including the establishing shot, with a lot of wide, medium, and medium close-up coverage. Many of these shots contain movement of both the camera and the actors within the frame, with Maddie and Leland providing action, while the others all sit. So, even though we're dealing with a group of people seated in a room talking, the material is presented in a dynamic way, and this dynamism is motivated organically from the drama itself. Clearly, we're dealing with a director who has and likes to work in a sophisticated, conceptually complex, but viscerally engaging fashion. Hunter has spoken about his influences, drawing particularly from film noir. The work of Orson Welles and Otto Preminger provided touchstones, and throughout the episode, he finds interesting ways to open up scenes, beginning with a particular detail, Jacoby playing with a golf ball, the antler chandelier at the Great Northern, or the night tennis players at Jacques' apartment, before revealing the broader context. Some cool establishing shots or wide-opening shots with the characters already present of new or relatively new locations. We're getting a strong feeling for the world these people move around in, getting enveloped both in corners of the set and broader eye-catching location works. There are many noticeable striking compositions and camera tricks. In terms of filmmaking, this is one of my favorite non-Lynch episodes for the constantly creative ways that it finds to tell its story and to place its characters in relation to one another. As you might guess from his handling of this material, Hunter started his career in cinema, directing four features in the 80s, Tex, Sylvester, River's Edge, and Paint It Black. Three of these focus on teenage protagonists, and one, River's Edge, bears some striking resemblances to Twin Peaks in both narrative and tone. A decidedly quirky, offbeat depiction of a small town that has trouble dealing with the discovery of a dead girl, in this case nude, discovered along a body of water, River's Edge also overlaps with Lynch's casting. Dennis Hopper's big 1986 comeback consisted of his work in this film, as well as Blue Velvet, and also Hoosiers, for which he won a supporting actor Oscar that year. It also features Crispin Glover, who would later have a tiny, if memorable, place in Wild at Heart. He makes a strong impression as one of the teens trying to avoid dealing with the dead girl. If you've never seen Glover's unforgettable appearances on David Letterman's show around this time to promote River's Edge, 
a gift awaits you in the show notes. I recommend you you go check it out. Trust me, you're going to want to watch this. As for Hunter, he continued to direct crime films with young casts every few years throughout the 90s and early zeros. And after a long decade and a half gap, he recently returned to feature mode with the Nicolas Cage mystery Looking Glass. For the most part, however, Twin Peaks set Hunter on a very different direction. Before he worked on episode four, the 40-something director had shot one episode of Falcon Crest in 1988. Since then, he shot about uh, 90 episodes of television, emerging as one of the most acclaimed journeymen of the medium. However, he seldom sticks to one series. The most he's ever directed of any show is six episodes during the first two seasons of Mad Men, after which he didn't return to that world. For the most part, he's a one-and-done filmmaker, dipping briefly into the distinctive worlds of Riverdale, Gotham, Pretty Little Liars, Revenge, American Horror Story, Glee, Dexter, Lie to Me, Sons of Anarchy, Breaking Bad, Deadwood, Law & Order, House Carnival, Homicide Life on the Street, Chicago Hope, Erie, Indiana, and Beverly Hills 90210, among many, many others. That's actually just a small sample of that long list. The writer of this episode, Robert Engels, also had a Lynch connection, but his would actually come later rather than before Twin Peaks. When he was hired for this episode, he was pulled from the Frost Stable, much like Harley Payton in the previous entry. In fact, Engels went back much further with Frost than Payton did, all the way back to Minneapolis, where Frost's dad, who plays Doc Hayward on the show, Warren Frost, he was a popular uh, theater professor at the University of Minnesota in the 60s and 70s. Engels was one of Frost's students, as was Chris Mulkey, the elder Frost, and uh, Chris Mulkey, by the way, is introduced as Hank Jennings on this episode. There's like a whole Minnesota mafia, I think they called them, like all these people that the Frosts knew that they kind of brought on board in Twin Peaks, includes production designer Richard Hoover, uh, almost all of the invitation to love soap within a soap opera actors, and actually even the small parts on the, the actors playing uh, Hank's parole board, also actors that they knew from Minneapolis. So they were like a, a tight-knit clan from the theater that Mark Frost would direct there and the classes his father taught. It was like a, a real community that came out here. So Twin Peaks is not only an example of like Lynch's stable, but also Frost's. So prior to Twin Peaks, uh, Robert Engels had not written for TV. In fact, he has no public credits at all before the series. So he may have worked more behind the scenes in development like Peyton did. Uh, or just found other work in the film industry or elsewhere while hoping to eventually write screenplays. So this was a big break for him. And it immediately led to other work on the acclaimed show Wise Guy, which was on contemporaneously. Uh, because of the long delay in getting Twin Peaks to the air, the Wise Guy episodes actually aired first, and they caused a bit of consternation because there was a whole arc about a murder in a northwestern mill town that looked an awful lot like Twin Peaks. So given Engel's inclusion on the staff, this kind of raised a few eyebrows, but I guess the material was planned without his involvement, and you know Frost brought him back later, so there was no no hard feelings there, I guess. But it, it was sort of an interesting coincidence. In Brad Duke's Reflections Oral History, when praising the writers that he brought on to flesh out particular episodes of season one mark frost says bob had this midwestern what's the right word not simplicity but a practicality that fit the profile of the town in the second season frost would give engels the role of story editor the position that he himself once filled on hill street blues as with peyton and unlike with the directors i'll save uh, engels future career for discussion in later episodes because we're going to be seeing a lot more of them i've had a lot more to say about his work on this particular episode in the past i really enjoy it but I'll save that for later. For now, we'll just note that Engels does a great job crafting a relaxed, lived-in vibe for the characters to inhabit. It's the kind of hangout quality that Howard Hawks, for example, specialized in cultivating uh, with his own writers and co-writers during the golden age of Hollywood. For the context on this episode, 
this is the third episode to go into production in the fall of 1989. Even with the delay in shooting David Lynch's episode two, by now the cast and crew were in a rhythm. Noticeably, we're getting a lot more location work now than we were in the first post-pilot episode. This was also the first episode cut by Paul Trejo, who for much of the series would alternate with Tony Morgan and Jonathan P. Shaw, keeping the workload manageable between them. Uh, there are only two exceptions that come to mind to this to this stable of editors. One is Dwayne Dunham. Uh, by now, he's mostly focusing on his directing rather than editing work after directing the first episode, uh, but he comes back after the pilot to cut the two-hour premiere of season two. And the other exception to this, uh, the other editor who came on board for one other episode is Mary Sweeney. She would become Lynch's exclusive editor, as well as his creative and romantic partner for over a decade. And she came in to edit one crucial Lynch-directed episode in season two. That's it for this episode. Tomorrow, we will pick up with the mystery clues, who killed Laura Palmer, looking at the evidence that this episode offers, and starting to organize it in a new way where different investigations are splitting off. So we'll take a little look at that as well. And also uh, taking an assessment of the structure of the episode seeing how the narrative unfolds. If you enjoy this work, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. And I will have uh, a podcast coming out soon, uh, the longer, probably two-thirds of a conversation with John Thorne, the great Twin Peaks commentator who uh, put out the Wrapped in Plastic magazines in the 90s and 2000s. We had a huge, long three-and-a-half-hour or three-hour conversation. I'm going to put part of it on YouTube, part of it on Patreon, and that will go up by the end of Halloween because that's a monthly uh, reward that I want to keep up with. So you can look for that soon. And otherwise, keep tuning in daily for these Lost in Twin Peaks uh, episodes, uh, including tomorrow. See you then, and happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.